Tyler's message is God's great faithfulness. To rationalize a trait that many of us are extreme experts at. Webster's dictionary verb, rationalize. Attempt to explain or justify one's own or another's behavior or attitude with logical, plausible reasons, even if these are not true or appropriate. Synonyms. Justify, explain away, account for, defend, vindicate. I'd say the vast majority of us go to the doctor, and uh, sometimes doctors are up front with you and get right to the point, and uh, I suppose that's what we pay them for. Sometimes a doctor will look in the eye and say, you're overweight, and it stings a little sometimes, and sometimes we even become indignant. We feel insulted, and even though uh, it's truth for our own good. So that's when we rationalize and say things like, I'm not fat, I'm nutritionally enhanced. I'm just a little fluffy, a little poofy, a little on the husky side. I'm just big boned. I was born thick. Here a few months ago, maybe even last year, my mind, I don't remember things. Union Health put, gives you a checkout paper when, you're, when you leave on your symptoms and uh, some of the medicines that you're taking and stuff. And on the bottom of mind, at the top, it said my name, birthday, 2850. And at the bottom, it said you are mildly obese. But uh, I thought about that a little bit. It was kind of amusing to me, actually. You realize that 36% of Americans are classified obese, 34% overweight. But if we hear these things and we're proactive when this is said about us, we might even consider dieting like Jeff Allen in this, this clip. Let's watch. The Tammy's dieting now. That means I'm dieting. That's the rules. Because <laughs> I mean, I should, you honor your wife. If she wants to diet, I'm dieting. She's on keto now. We've tried paleo, we've tried Atkins, now we're on keto. She wants to get into ketosis. That's fine with me. I got cookies in my office in the basement. I don't <laughs> I was handing out cookies to my grandchildren one day. One of you will betray me. <laughs> yeah. My grandson, is it me, Papa? Is it me? It is you, you little punk. Those crumbs off your lips. So I'm unpacking the groceries after the big keto buy. Tammy went out and bought a bunch of groceries for keto, and I'm unpacking them, and I come across rice cakes. Never had a rice cake in our home. Don't know what a rice cake is. Never eaten one. All I see is the word cake. And I call her out on it. And I go, baby, I thought cake was a no-no with the keto. And she says, no, that's for our cheat day. Apparently on keto, you get to cheat one day a week. Cool as that. So a few days went by, and I'm ready for my cheat day, and I remember, sir, we have cake. <laughs> I ran to the pantry. I pull one out. I pull a cake, a rice cake out of the package. I'm feeling it. Yeah, it kind of feels like a brake pad, you know. <laughs> but it's cake. How bad can it be? Oh. I took a bite and never made it to my throat. <laughs> I said, baby, these are stale. She says, no, that's the way they are. I go, then this isn't cake, it's caulk. 
It's not food, it's insulation. Who are these people kidding? I threw the rest of them to our three dogs. I go, you eat these things. And our dog scarfed them right up. Hour later, went in my front yard and passed the thermos. Got a yard full of Yetis out there. I'm telling you, I can't keep up with the food anymore anyway. GMO, non-GMO, you know, we had food, didn't we, sir? We had food, that's when we were growing up, food. And you ate it because kids were starving in China, that's all you know. <laughs> Eat that, there's a kid in China starving. Oh, he's not getting my food. <laughs> now it's GMO, non-GMO, organic, non-organic, gluten, gluten-free, kale. I never saw kale in my life until Tammy went on keto. Now it's ubiquitous, it's all over my house. You can't put enough ranch dressing on kale to make it taste good. Oh, and then one night she makes kale chips. You know what kale chips are, sir? It's kale leaves on a cookie sheet burned in the oven at 400 degrees. They sit, she, she pulls out this smoldering heap of weeds. She throws them on my plate. I go, what are these? She said, kale chips. I go, it's a brush fire. What are you talking about? food? I tried to give him to my dog. My dog goes, no way, man. My dog, my dog eats the cat litter. What does that tell you? It's awful. Dieting has often been called the battle of the bulge. For many of us, the bulge usually wins. We may start out on Monday morning determined to trim off some fat, but by Wednesday, we've begun to compromise, and when Friday comes back, comes around, we're back to our old habits, perhaps. That's we might, might as well, or might do well on the stress diet. Breakfast, one half grapefruit, one piece of whole wheat toast, no butter, eight ounces of skim milk, coffee, black, lunch, Four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, skin removed, one cup of steamed zucchini, herb tea, no sugar, one Oreo cookie. Snack. The rest of the package of Oreo cookies, one quart of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge and caramel topped with pecans for dinner, two loaves of garlic bread heavy on the butter, one large sausage and pepperoni pizza, extra cheese, two large milkshakes with whipped cream, and for dessert, three Snickers candy bars and an entire frozen cheesecake. Amen. Oh, the impact of one Oreo cookie. One wonders when Israel ate the first cookie. Maybe it was when one of the family first found a Canaanite idol. It was just something to look at and they didn't worship it. They, did. they decided to take it in their house and maybe put it on a shelf or even put it in a closet. And then one of the children discovers it one day, and the neighbor sees it, and they're curious. And before, no, before you know it, one compromise led to another. And before they realized it, Israel not only sampled the Canaanites' Oreo, but they ended up swallowing the whole package as well. Hosea was a prophet who prophesied to the ten northern tribes of Israel. In verse 4 of chapter 8, he writes, with their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves. What was happening with them, just cherishing a little artifact, ended up a massive manufacturing effort to lead the nation away from God. Wholehearted idolatry. 
And we read these things in the Old Testament, and we might think that it's just for then, but it is very paramount that we understand this, that it is today. When you look in the kingdom of God, it's amazing how many idols that, that we, even within the church, have set up and almost bow and worship and d- donate our time and our money to, actually. Ben Franklin, back in 1758, wrote, A little neglect may breed great mischief. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. And for the want of a horse, the rider was lost. So we need to pay attention to the nail and take a look at the cookie. Because neglecting some of those details is the first step that we can take to defeat. And when we continue going down and doing wrong, we set in motion a cycle of catastrophic complications. When you start reading in Genesis and you read all the way to the Revelation, it's one story after another about people giving their lives to God and then falling back, falling backwards, backsliding, whatever you might call it. It's a cycle regularly repeated in the Scripture. In 1722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took the Jews of that region into captivity And part of their issue was that they spread them throughout the whole Assyrian Empire and had them mate and intermingle with other tribes and other groups of people to discredit the Jewish bloodline, actually. And that's that's what they did. That was 722. Now, remember, this is the ten northern tribes. Then in 536, the Babylonian army swarmed over Jerusalem, took the southern kingdom capping, and marched the people of Judah off to Babylon. That was the truth of Judah and Benjamin. God's people were swept away by the whirlwind, Hosea 8, 7. He prophesied that. The prophet Jeremiah watched this upheaval and prophesied for 40 tearful years. And in his journal... The Lamentations of Jeremiah, he recorded what he saw and what he felt after the fall of Jerusalem and after the fall of Judah. Lament means to cry out with words of grief. It's a wailing cry in the middle of the night. It's the sadness brought on by loss, and many of us have lost people to the grave, and we understand that. You hear these cries sometimes. But this was the loss of a nation. And as Jeremiah stumbled through the rubble, Of Zion, he took notes and remembered with aching melancholy the days when his nation was great. Lamentations 3, 1 through 3. I am a man who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me, he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Israel had deliberately and consciously and with some sort of calculation, walked away from the ways of God. Now his afflicting whirlwind was beginning to sweep the people off their feet. That is when affliction turns to desolation. We look at verses 8 through 11. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayers. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He's talking about God. And I think sometimes in our lives when we stray, when we sin, and things don't line up like we want, 
He's maybe the first one, the first one that we blame. In desolation, the people fall helplessly on their backs, humiliated and isolated. They feel rejected by God. It, then comes the mockery. Verse 14, I have become a laughingstock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. I don't know how many of you keep journals, diaries, call it what you will. You write your thoughts down for that day, and then sometime in the future you go back and you see what was going on in your life on that day. Well, he records it all in his journal. He says in verse 4, I'm broken. I'm blocked in verse 9. I'm bitter, verse 15. He goes on to say, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness, verse 17. Like the branches of a tree in a violent storm, the prophet's heart is bowed within him in verse 20. But yet, in his misery, in his despair, he looks and he sees the character of God. And he sees God standing firm. He doesn't sway and change his perspective on the storm. This is definitely a passage worth remembering The hinge is Jeremiah's thinking in verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. He was saying, this I recall to my mind, that my God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing, that my God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, that my God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, that my God has unconditional love for me. And even in the midst of misery and seeing his city in shambles, he remembers God. And he knows that God is in control, even though it doesn't seem like it. Jeremiah has been walking through the remains of the city that he loves, kicking the debris, remembering the bitterness and wondering how all this could have happened. And suddenly, a shining truth dawns on his darkened heart in verse 22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. I think that's a verse that we can lift out today in in the situation that we find ourselves in with this COVID. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never fail, for his compassions never fail, never cease, never fail. It was like we talked about last word, the Hebrew word chesed, which is for mercy. It's the same word for loving kindness. Compassion means sympathetic, sympathetic love, concern for the helpless. It's like the father in Luke 15. It's a familiar story. We all know it. Son asks his dad, said, Dad, won't you give me my inheritance? I want to go see what the world's like. Taste it. Experience it. I like the King James Version because it says that the son went out and engaged in riotous living. What that might mean. We all kind of got an idea, I think. The dad didn't try to talk him out of it. He didn't offer him more money to stay home. He let him go. Well, we know how the story goes. The son goes out and hangs out in the world and spends all of his money. Actually, he squandered it, and he didn't even have anything to eat. And he had to eat pig slop. It says that he finally came to his senses and returned home to his father. What the dad do? You know, you picture that in your mind. (laughs) He was standing on the porch, tears running down his face. He was so happy to see his son. He took him in, put on the best robe, the best rig, and had this big party for him. I think there's a little prodigal in all of us. 
I have philosophies in life. They're my own. I believe that there's a little brat in all of us. I think there's a certain amount of being prodigal in that. It might even be with our own family. It might be with our dad. It might be with God. If we would create the prodigal son today, it might look like this father and this son in this clip. Let's watch. Hey, Dad. It's Mark. I, uh, I know I'm probably the last person you're expecting to hear from right now. But I'm, uh, I'm home. Now you're home. I'm actually standing on your front porch. I, uh, Look, I just want to tell you that I know I haven't been, you know, the best son. Look, I guess what I'm trying to say is... I'm, so, I'm sorry for that, Dad. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing, all right? You've been fine without me? You know, I'm sure you continue to be fine without me. I, uh... I won't bother you no more, Dad. All right. I'm just sorry. Sorry about everything. Bye.
That story might fit you one of two ways this morning. That could apply to you and uh, your dad, or it could mean that you have strayed away from God and you picture yourself as the prodigal and God the Father welcome you back. In Lamentations 3.23, another ray of hope pierces throughout the dark clouds hovering over Jerusalem and similarly pictures God's never-failing compassions. It says, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Even then, when we blow it, that all of us has made mistakes, made bad decisions. Maybe you had a failed marriage or your business goes bankrupt. Even when you know better, his faithfulness never diminishes. It is always, always great. God's compassion and love is new every morning. Do you know what God's morning message is to you, to us, it's the dawn itself. doesn't matter whether it's cloudy, sky's clear, bright, or rainy. He says every morning, not just when the sun shines, every morning the Lord sends this message to you and to I. I'm still here. Let's go through the day together. Tomorrow we'll face tomorrow, but for today I'm here to faithfully show you love and kindness and compassion. Please let me. It's enough sunshine to chase away any dark clouds. Here's some suggestions worth trying. Trust God that he remembers you, that he's faithful to know not only who you are, but where you are, what you're running from, and where you're running to. And all the while, he's dogging your heels with his untiring faithfulness. He's there and he cares. How do we trust him? In verses 24 through 34, God gives us four ways to carry out our trust. Number one is this. Wait patiently. Stop running and start start waiting. Verse 25, the first part. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Secondly, instead of ignoring him, start seeking him again. Last part of 25, for the Lord is good to the person who seeks him. Number three, To stop talking and sit silently. Verse 28, let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. After you've poured out your heart to God, it is good to sit and to listen. It's not something I do real well. I don't know about you. When you read a passage and you ponder it, it's good to take time and just sit there and allow God to speak back to you. I think most of us don't do that so much. Feel his arms around us. Feel the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And then number four, submit willingly. When circumstances seem like that God has us down, maybe uh, with his foot on our necks, the tendency is to want to stand up and defend ourselves. Jeremiah advises just the opposite in 29 and 30. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. This means... No rationalization. Can we do that? You know, you think, can you do that in your life without coming up with excuses, uh, rationalizing? Stop trying to get around the, the heinous sin in your life. We need to face it submissively, willingly. And if you do, verse 31 and 32 offer this wonderful promise of encouragement for us. For the Lord will not reject forever. 
For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant love and kindness. We have sin in our life, and the Holy Spirit convicts us. It makes us feel bad. We ask for forgiveness. The joy comes back. If you wait patiently, seek God diligently, sit silently, and submit willingly, he will show you that his mercies haven't ceased, that his compassions haven't failed, and his faithfulness hasn't diminished. On a scale of 1 to 10 this morning, how, how would you relate your relationship to your heavenly Father? Where's it at? You've been hanging out with him. You've been communicating. You've been in his word at all. I don't know that answer, but you do, and God knows it as well as he shares that with you this morning. And perhaps you could relate to the prodigal young man in the clip. You've walked away from the father's house. You've got lost in the world. There's so many distractions. You're away from God. You're away from his word. You're away from his Holy Spirit. I think today is the time to come home. And you look. I like word pictures in my mind. I like to look and see Jesus on the front porch of my house. And he's got his arms out. And he's waiting. And it's not a look of anger on his face. It's a look of compassion. And he's smiling. And if you could read his lips, he's saying, I love you no matter what. Come on home. Or maybe you can totally empathize with the prophet Jeremiah as he pours out his heart to God. He said, I am broken. I'm blocked. I'm bitter. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. It's like I am in this violent storm and my heart is bowed down. This describes you this morning. Um, so come on home to Christ. He, he totally understands. He knows how we're feeling. He knows the thoughts that we're having during this time of pandemic. I don't like the word, but that's what it is. And we've adjusted. And for the sake of each other, for the church, for our community, we will continue to adjust as we follow the Holy Spirit's lead. I do miss you guys. It was great being back together for a couple weeks, but we'll get back together again. But until that time, trust in God and his great faithfulness. Lord, we love you. I thank you for your love and compassion and your mercy that you bestow on us as your children. And as we hope, Lord, we hope for the future. We do hope for a vaccine. We hope that this goes away. But he's not going to, you're not, God's not going to remove us out of it. We know that, Lord. So right now we adjust. I just pray for these people. Keep them safe, Lord. Keep them smart. We give you praise and glory for who you are, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.